0: This sermon is from Grace Fellowship Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. To access other sermons or to learn more about us, please visit our website at graceedmonton.ca. Well, we're, we're here again, and you're probably wondering, uh, if you didn't hear last week's announcement, what are we going to do between 1 Corinthians 16 and the end of that that chapter that we've been working on or that book that we've been working on for the last number of weeks and and now moving into the book of uh, the Gospel of Mark in in the next couple of weeks. But uh, before we do that, we thought that this would be an excellent, an opportune time to take a couple of weeks uh, from our normal sequential study through the books of the Bible and, and take some time to consider, both to consider and to commend the biblical practice of family worship that is the the practice of families worshiping God together in their homes every day and you've heard us speak over the last number of months I'm sure at least once about our growing concern or maybe our our continued concern for the souls of the children in this room that God has blessed us really and truly blessed us with families with, with little children and or, or perhaps with, with a husband or a wife, or with even brothers or sisters. I think about the siblings that, that live together too in this room. And so what we thought best, if we wanted to address uh, the children and really the, the spiritual welfare of the families in this congregation, one of the best ways to do that uh, is probably not to offer uh, amazing children's ministries as, as, as good as those might be in, in their rightful place, but, but to equip the families to prepare the parents, even to prepare husbands in their relationship with their wives, or even older brothers in relationship to their siblings, or, or even younger siblings in relation to their older siblings, we could even say, to lead one another in worship. And as I was studying this, uh, I sent a text message to, to Steve, and I said, Brother, pray for me. I am having such a difficult time. Uh, not because this is a hard topic, but because I had an impossible time just putting together an introduction for all of this. Uh, and the reason for that is this, that for, for many of us, we're acquainted with the concept of family worship, w- this idea that families are to meet together on a daily basis to to worship God and to, and to hear from the Word of God and to pray and to sing. But I'm, I'm also mindful that there are many people who have maybe people in this room who have never heard of this idea of family worship. And I think that if we were to go to the average person in the average ordinary church and ask them, do you engage in family worship? Many people would look at us with blank stares. And I think the I know the reason for this. It's because I think we live in a day and we live in the midst of a Christian culture that has outsourced worship. That we attend a place where we're professional musicians and paid facilitators of worship lead the people in worship or even more aptly serve the people worship to consume, a worship experience. And so for for many Christians today, worship is is a consumable, not necessarily an activity or, or a passion or a calling or a way of life. And many people simply do not think of worship and discipleship as activities that really, really truly meaningfully and intentionally are engaged in on any day of the week other than Sunday or in any place other than within the four walls of the church. So in many ways, family worship has grown out of vogue. And yet because of this one dimensional view of worship, many of our families, I think about this, many of of the families that are in the the greater evangelical world. And many of the children in that world have been denied the opportunity, and it's an opportunity, make no mistake, have been denied the opportunity to worship God and to be discipled, not just on Sundays when the church meets together, but every other day of the week in their homes and amongst their families. And as a result of this, we see, I think, the effects of that, even within the greater evangelical world, that, that Christian families are raising children who are biblically illiterate, that you can ask an 18-year-old to, to explain just, just the basics of the gospel, and they are unable to do that. They might know the story of of noah and the ark or they might know uh, some new testament story about the apostle paul but they can't tell you why jesus came to the world and died on the cross and not only that but then we see families that are that are fragmented and that have no grounding in the gospel we see marriages that that don't reflect the gospel of christ we see the, the daily practices of families that don't reflect the word of god and so for today's purposes this is all I have in mind to do. This is my my one goal, is I want to demonstrate from God's word. I want to bring that to each of you. I want to demonstrate that the practice of family worship, whether that's with parents and children, or with husbands and their wives, or with siblings who live together, the practice of family worship is a thoroughly biblical practice. And not only that, I want to convey to each of you If you get only one thing, and children, if you get only one thing from what I say today, I want to convey this, that that God is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your worship individually, and he's worthy of your worship as a family. And he's worthy of your worship on Sundays, but he's also worthy of your worship on every other day of the week. And so I'm going to do this to the best of my ability, to convey that. And then with the the time that we have, with the limited time that we have, I want to get really practical. And I just want to give us some, some basic tools. I want to equip principally the men, but also the women, to pursue this practice of family worship, to engage in this good, worthwhile, and necessary duty and privilege that is family worship. So that's our plan for today. And, and I admit right at the onset, this is gonna be a very different message than what we're normally used to hearing because we're not going to work out of one particular text. We know that we usually have a home base. We believe in expository preaching. We will do that uh, and we will continue to do that. But for today, we're gonna, we're gonna be a little bit more topical and we're gonna get very practical. What I would really like is for people to leave here, moved to worship with their families, move to worship with their, with their wives or with their husbands, move to worship with their siblings, and then with the tools to do that. And I acknowledge uh, at the onset, I need to give credit where credit is due. I've, I've benefited greatly from the writing ministry of people like Joel Beakey. You hear me quote Joel Beakey often, Donald Whitney, Scott Brown, uh, and, and a couple others. And, and I've really leaned on some of their books for some of this good, wise, pastoral advice. So... Um, if you read some of their books and you say, hey, Shane said that, it's probably because I read it there at some point, too. So I give them that credit. And uh, we do have some of those books coming. They were meant to be here uh, probably right about now, except Canada Post has held them up somewhere, uh, somewhere between Michigan, Reformation Heritage Books and here. So. Uh, they're in the mail. They'll probably be here next week. And so I'm going to mention some books along the way. And I would encourage you come back next week, ask for those books. Please take some of those books. If uh, if you're really zealous, I have one remaining book here, and I will give that to you. Family Worship by Joel Beeke. So I, s- I wanted to have a short introduction. I didn't have that at all. But let's let's get a look at some some of these texts. So the very first thing, and if you're you can follow along in our bulletin is this the very first thing that I want to demonstrate from God's Word from taking a sampling of God's Word is this the biblical mandate the biblical mandate for family worship now there there are some people somewhere that might very well argue that by commending family worship uh, like we are in in this church today and even from preaching on family worship from the pulpit where we are somehow imposing an extra biblical practice upon God's people that they were somehow adding a burden to the backs of busy men and women or busy husbands and wives or busy parents and what I want us to observe in contrast to that view is that if we are prepared to see this practice worked out in scripture we're going to quickly recognize that, that the practice of, of a man leading his family in worship regularly even daily is thoroughly biblical we're going to recognize that there is a mandate for men to lead their wives or even women maybe that they are courting i'm thinking of you brother in the practice of family worship or at least worship of some kind there is a mandate a biblical mandate for family worship And so what we're going to do is we're going to survey some of the pages of Scripture to see that that family worship is both modeled in Scripture and that it's commanded. And not just Old Testament, but Old Testament and new. And so I'll have us open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. We are going to get to Joshua chapter 24, but not just yet. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 17. In this account, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, and there he again promised Abraham that he would give him a son. He promised him that he'd give him a son, and just before God left Abraham to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, this is what we read. These are some words that the Lord God said to Abraham in Genesis 18, 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him. Many people, or sorry, excuse me, for I have chosen him. That was a note to myself. Many people, stop paying attention here, that that God gave a promise to Abraham that he was going to give him a son. But it, it continues. For I have chosen him, God said, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised to him so here God speaks to Abraham and he says i'm going to give you children and th- and as we've already recognized children are a heritage from the Lord they're a blessing psalm 27 calls them a reward if you're holding a child in your arms or if you have a child seated next to you or on your lap that child is a heritage from the Lord and the same promise was given to Abraham. But what does he say here? He says, I have chosen you. You're going to have this child. And what, is the main, one of the, what are one of the main functions? What is one of the main functions that you're going to carry out in the life of this child? That, he, that Abraham may command his children and his household, his family after him, to keep the way of the Lord. Now keep in mind, men, women, that, that this was before there was a tabernacle. This was before there was a temple. This is before there were Jewish synagogues. And so the only way that Abraham could disciple his children and command his household after him was to lead them and to teach them at home. It was a family discipleship model. And here God expected that Abraham would would not only have children, but that he would lead them in the ways of God. If we fast forward a little bit to the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, we read that famous command from God to the Israelites who are about to enter into that promised land. That book of Deuteronomy essentially is is a sermon from Moses to the nation. And there in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, speaking on behalf of God, Abraham says this. He says, Hear, O Israel, the the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We know this, don't we? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The people, the people were to remember God's word. They were to obey him. But that wasn't all. Moses continues. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So here we see that the, the men of Israel, the people of Israel, they were going to bring their families into the promised land. You can, you can picture those, the, the children crossing the Jordan on dry ground. We don't, we don't read a whole lot about them, but they were there and they were there with their families And what God says is this. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the great commandment. Love the Lord your God. Yes, absolutely. Listen to that. Do it. But then he says, and you shall teach it to your children. The very next step. It's to adopt it. It's to understand it. It's to obey it. And then it's to pass it along to your children. And notice he doesn't say this is a one-time event. He doesn't say teach it to your children once. But he says you shall teach them diligently once. When you sit in your home, when you walk, when you lie down, and when you rise up. It's literally every day, perhaps even multiple times per day. God says, when you sit in your house, when you're with your family, when you're coming and going, when you wake up at breakfast, and before you go to bed, tell them the things of God. In the book of Job, if we fast forward even a bit more to Job chapter 1 and verse 1. This is interesting. Kids, does anyone know who was the most righteous man in Job's generation? Does anyone know the answer to that question? The, the most righteous man, the most holy man in, in the whole world at that time. Job chapter one and verse one says that it was Job. So Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God, and turned away from evil. And who among us wouldn't want to be described in this kind of language? What a description. A man who is blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. But what I find fascinating when we look at at who Job was and and the description that we get of him is that in verse two, we, we hear a little bit about his children. In verse three, we hear about his possessions, his livestock, and then we get a qualifier. What, what made Job so righteous? What made Job holy and upright and a God-fearing man? Job 1 verse 4 says, Job's sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each on his day. Maybe that was a birthday. Maybe that was some kind of festival. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did. Once, thus Job did continually. And so here we have one of the most upright characteristics of Joel. This this righteous and this blameless man is this, that that he acted as a kind of under-shepherd. And even some commentators would say as a priest of his family. He was attuned to the activities of his family. He knew when his children were coming and going. He knew when they were having their gatherings. He prayed for them. But not only did he pray for them, but he prayed over them. He consecrated them. He prayed with them. He made confession, atonement for their sins by sacrifice. And he did this continually. And what we see... I'm just giving us a sampling. But what we would see if we went through the entire Old Testament is that we see family worship either fully commended, commanded, or we see it modeled by righteous men or even some righteous women. And so we read in, in passages like Psalm 78. Uh, we didn't plan this, brother. You picked that verse. But Psalm 78, verses 2, two to 4, Asaph, who was one of the leaders of the music, Um, who was appointed by King David. He writes there, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. This was characteristic of godly men and women in the Old Testament. They did not hide the word of God or their songs of praise to God for his glorious deeds from their children. To hide that would would to be sin would be to sin against both the children and God. But it doesn't just stop there. And I'm gonna move this a little bit quicker, but it doesn't just stop in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament as well, that family worship is, is both commended and commanded in that text. In 2 Timothy 1.5, we read this. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you. What we see here is that Tim- Timothy's faith was multi-generational. So this passage implies that Timothy was a believer in Christ, because this faith that he had was first his grandmother's and then it was passed down to his mother's and then it was passed down to him. It went from one generation to another. And if we were to move a little, we're not going to go there, but if we were to look at 2 Timothy 3, we'd see that Timothy became wise for salvation. Not because of some, some outward influence likely, but because someone was reading the Bible to him from childhood that he was acquainted with the scriptures from childhood. And that was probably either his mom or his grandmother. And, the, and that's because that's what righteous people do in the Bible, is, is they take the truth about God and they pass it along to their children. And if that doesn't convince you, if you say every example you've brought up so far is Old Testament, that's Old Covenant, and if you say, well, that's one example from the life of Timothy, Ephesians 6, 4, Paul says fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger. Don't exasperate them. We would agree with that. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So beloved, I want you to see this with me, that there is a biblical mandate for family worship. And then men, specifically in this room, whether you have children or not, men, I want you to see this with me. This is primarily your responsibility in your home. If you're a married man without children, it's your responsibility to lead your family in worship. If you're a married man with children in your home, it's your responsibility to lead your family in worship. And if you're a young man, it's your responsibility to prepare yourself to lead your families in worship. And if you're not regularly doing that already, then you're neglecting God's word already. You're you're, you're wronging your children and you're sinning against God if you're, not, if, you're, if you're choosing to hide the word of God from your family. And we see this in other points in church history. Uh, for, for those of you that, that love the, the stories that I bring sometimes from church history, when we look at the Westminster Assembly, this, this group of godly men that met together to put together the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Catechism Uh, They wrote that if a man neglected the responsibility of leading family worship, he was to be barred from the Lord's table. And so these are the words they said, he is to be gravely and sadly reproved by the session, after which if he be found still to neglect family worship, let him be for his obstinacy in such an offense suspended and debarred from the Lord's supper as being justly esteemed unworthy. And so if you were to go back to 17th century England or maybe Puritan America and you were to see a a man who wasn't leading his family in worship, that was considered to be a travesty. It was considered to be unworthy. And we're gonna look at some examples from church history and what we find is it it wasn't just the Puritan era of of England and the United States, but it's it's all of redemptive history and then a great deal of church history where, where the men who were worthy the families who were worthy, to use these men's words, were those who led their families in worship. I'll move along. So we've looked at the, the biblical mandate for family worship. Now I want us to consider this, the components of family worship. So you say, okay, I, I've, I've heard from the scripture that, that family worship is biblical, that I should be engaging in this kind of thing. Now what does that look like day to day? Now, different people have have framed this in different ways. Some people have said that family worship consists of they say the three S's: Scripture, supplication, song. Uh, another brother wrote a book and said that uh, three simple verbs could describe family worship: read, pray, sing. I, I like I like that verbiage, and I think that if we look at the totality of Scripture, I think family worship could be described. Really and truly, if we, if we want to do a good job of leading our children to the Lord, of, of teaching them the ways of God, then these four words would be very helpful. Read, pray, sing, assemble. Four verbs, they're in your handout. Read, pray, sing, and assemble. And what we'll do is we'll look at what this, what this looks like functionally. And so the, the very first thing, if, if you are a dad in this room, and you say, I want to lead my family in worship, the very first step is to read the word of God. Everything that we do must be based on the word of God, on the scriptures alone. And so if we're to engage in worthy family worship in our homes, it must be Bible based. And we see that, just to repeat myself, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. To quote from that, that passage in 2 Timothy 3 in regards to Timothy's conversion, Paul writes there, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. I'm, I'm gonna just gloss over these relatively quickly, but men, if you want to lead your families in worship, the very first thing to do is get them around a roo- get them around you in a room and get the Bible open on your lap. Read the word of God. Donald, Donald Whitney says this, consistent father led worship is one of the best, steadiest and most easily measurable ways to bring up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Martin Luther, in speaking about family worship in his era, he said, Abraham had his tent, sorry, had in his tent a house of God, and a church. Just as today any godly and pious head of a household instructs his children in godliness. Therefore, such a house is actually a school and a church, and the head of the household is a bishop and a priest. And so if we treat our homes like like little churches, as the Puritans called them, and as little schools, then this is the textbook that we teach our children with. Matthew Henry said, turn your families into little churches. A church in the house will be a good legacy. Nay, it will be a good inheritance to be left to your children after you. And so men, if if you want to begin simply by leading your families in worship, open your Bibles and read the word, and read the word and explain the word. It doesn't take a great deal of of expertise or education. Uh, I, I think of you brother, you have a study Bible, read the Bible, share some of the comments from the text or from the, the commentary and ask your children some questions about what it is they're learning. Now, let's say you live in a home where you're married but you don't have children. What do you do in that type of situation? I think about what Paul said to, Ephesia, or to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5, verse 25. He said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's one of the expectations of men in a marriage, even if you don't have children, is that you're washing your wife in the water of the word, that you're bringing her to the well of God and that you're drawing up the truth of God to apply to your lives for the glory of God. And so, so we, we can take this too far, but in a very real way, the father and the, and the husband is to, to be a type of shepherd in his home. You're already a shepherd in your home, actually. And you're either a good one or a bad one. But, but a faithful shepherd feeds his flock. Not like a hire, hireling, but a faithful shepherd feeds his flock and he feeds his flock with the word. So we have Reed. next thing if you want to lead your families in worship is this read and then pray let your children how many i wonder how many families in the world how many children in the world have never heard their parents pray outside of a dinner grace how often do your children hear you pray how often do they hear you pray for the lost how often do they hear you pray that you might be able to understand the word of god How often do they hear you pray that that they might glean something from church this afternoon? How often do your children pray or hear you pray for their souls when your children hear you say, oh God, save my child. Please save them. I think about a comment that my children made one day. I was praying, praying for them at bedtime and I prayed that their names would be written in the Lamb's book of life. I remember one of the kids said afterwards, we don't always think that our kids are listening to us when we pray. But it was, I think it was the following day, it had stuck around in them long enough. They said, Dad, you were praying that my name would be in the Lamb's Book of Life. I want my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let your children hear your prayers. And we see a good example of this in the life of Charles Spurgeon. We'll bring a, a good Spurgeon example Someone wrote once they went to Charles Spurgeon's house for dinner. They spent uh, the evening with them. And if you spent the evening with the Spurgeons, it's my understanding that not only did you get dinner, but you got to be a participant in family worship. And uh, this one guest that went at their home, he wrote this. He said, one of the most helpful hours of my visit to Westwood, that's the Spurgeon's Spurgeon's residence, was the hour of family worship. At six o'clock, all the household gathered into the study for worship. Usually, usually Mr. Spurgeon would himself lead the vote the devotions. The portion read was invariably accompanied by exposition. How amazingly helpful those homely and gracious comments from Mr. Spurgeon were. Then, speaking of prayer, he says, "Then, how full of tender pleading and serene confidence of God in, in God, of world-embracing sympathy, were his prayers. His public prayers were an inspiration and a benediction, but his prayers with the family were to be more wonderful still. Mr. Spurgeon, when bowed down before God in family prayer, appeared a grander man, a more grander man even than when holding thousands spellbound with his oratory. He led his family in prayer. I know you guys have heard this story before, but it's a good story, so bear with me because uh, some stories are worth hearing twice. But when I think about how we need to lead our families in prayer, men, men, how we need to lead our wives in prayer, young men, how you need to prepare to lead your households in prayer. I think of John Patton. You've heard me talk about John Patton. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. And one of the most remarkable things about John Patton's story, uh, besides all, all of his missionary exploits, was just the story of the influence of his, of his father in his life when he was a young boy. Uh, John Patton's father grew up in a home, it was my understanding, where his dad did not lead family worship. And so, even as a young man, maybe Harson's age, his dad didn't lead worship. And so, what he did was he took it upon himself to lead family worship for his siblings. And then when he had children, eventually he was faithful in leading them in family worship. And one of the biographers for John Patton wrote this. He said, uh, none of us can remember. I think this is a quote from John Patton himself. None of us can remember that any day ever passed, unha- unhallowed thus, no hurry for market, no rush to business, no arrival of friends or guests, no trouble or sorrow, nor jo- no joy or excitement ever prevented at least are kneeling around the family altar while well, the high priest led our family or led our prayers to God and offered himself and his children there. And then speaking later about, about his father's prayer life, John Patton says, uh, how much my father's prayers at that time impressed me. I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand when on his knees, And picture this, the family, all of us kneeling around him in worship. He poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. And for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and to love Christ as our divine friend. And as we rose from our knees, I used to look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I might be privileged and prepared to carry the blessed gospel to some portion of the heathen world. If your children were to speak about your prayer life, if, if we were to ask your children about your prayer life, would they say, that, that is a perfect example of what it's like to be around my dad or to be around my husband when he prays. And you guys probably know that this this other part of the story that little did that family know as they met in their house for worship and his dad on his knees pleaded for the lost. There was a woman in the village who was leading an immoral life. She felt that that she was uh, destined to go to hell. And she was tempted often to commit suicide. And on the dark winter nights, she would creep close to the window of the Patton residence. And underneath the the ledge of that window, she would listen to that man's prayers. And she said later, when she was converted to Christ, she said, I felt that I was a burden on that good man's heart. And I knew that God would not disappoint him. That thought kept me out of hell and at last led me to the only Savior. Does that describe your prayer life? And husbands, Peter writes this, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It is true, men, that if we're rude and we're unkind to our wives, if we leave our houses in, in a huff after, after being rude to our wives and then we expect to have a, a, a vital prayer time in our car on the way to work, it's probably not going to happen. But, but even more true, what Peter has in mind here is that if you're living with your wife in a harsh way, if, if you're not living in an understanding way, it's going to hinder your prayer time together What kind of wife is going to want to pray with you when you mistreat her? And so so what he has in mind is not only should men lead their families, their children, and teach them how to pray, but men should lead their wives. And I think of a story of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, his wife Bethan Lloyd-Jones. When Martin had passed away, someone had asked her the question, what is the thing that you miss most about Martin? And we know that Martin was a a, a great orator. He was probably one of the most... uh, eminent preachers in England in the 1900s, but she did not miss his preaching most of all. And she didn't miss his presence in the pulpit most of all. She didn't miss his lectures or his writing most of all. Most of all, she said that what she missed was their private family prayer times in the evenings. And that what most impressed her about her husband was the time that he spent with her, drawing them both near to the throne of God. And she said that it was there that she experienced her greatest loss. Men, lead your families in prayer. So we've read, pray, sing. I'm going to speed us up a little bit, but we read in books like Ephesians 5, verse 18 and 19, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord with your heart that should be it should be something that's continuously happening in us this eruption of praise to God and so when we get together with our children we sing old hymns and we sing new hymns and we sing simple hymns and we sing deep hymns hymns that that are that are shallow enough for for the elephants to wade in, and yet deep enough for the elephants to bathe in. And we see this, for instance, in, the, in books like the Songs of Ascent in, in the book of Psalms. In, in Psalms, that's Psalms 120 to 134. That is essentially Israel's traveling hymnal. For the, the, the Song of Ascent, all of those hymns, or those Psalms, essentially, the Israelites, as they were making their way up the Temple Mount to Jerusalem on the road, they would sing those Psalms together. Those psalms weren't meant primarily to be used in the assembled worship of the church or the assembled worship of the, the nation of Israel, but they were this was a traveling hymnal. And so you can picture, kids, imagine this. You're in Israel, it's hot, it's dry, it's one of the three main festivals where your family makes its pilgrimage to the to Jerusalem, and they are on, on the dusty road. All of the kids are ascending the Temple Mount, and they're singing these songs together you've got old men and young men teenagers and and little ones little ones being held in someone's arm and they're singing the psalms of ascent and so they're really basic psalms like psalm 134 that are that are almost like this um, oh goodness (laughs) Jesus loves me this I know for the bible tells me so simple hymns like that but then you've got him like Psalm 130. I won't read it all, but Psalm 130: Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Picture this: little children, teenagers, big kids, young kids. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for me- mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But you, with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Imagining. Imagine a family with your your children singing that, O Lord, out of the depths I cry to you. And so the nation of Israel sung hymns that were rich in truth, they were full of emotion, and yet they were accessible. And so dads, lead your families in song, even if you don't have a good voice. And what you'll find is that your children will develop favorite hymns and they'll sing them for you. And there's probably fewer things in all the world that are more precious than hearing your children's little voices singing the deep rich truths of god and can it be that i should gain an interest in my savior's blood died he for me who caused him pain oh from to me who him to death pursued now some people might say but yes but music that's a that's a, a new invention and so uh, that can't be biblical because when we think of worship, oftentimes we only think of music, but, but it's thoroughly biblical. Not only do we find it in scripture, but, but we find it even in the annals of church history. Tertullian, a second century theologian, he wrote this about family worship in the generations immediately following the completion of the Bible, like right after the Bible was done. This is what the church was doing. He says, speaking about families, they pray together This is second century. They pray together. They worship together. They fast together, instructing one another, encouraging one another, strengthening one another. Psalms and hymns, they sing together, striving to see which one of them will chant more beautifully the praises of their Lord. Hearing and seeing this, Christ rejoices. So families, read, pray, sing, and then lastly and quickly, I'll mention this one, assemble. Not only do we get the benefit, not only do we get the privilege and the duty, men specifically, but families, of, of leading our families in worship, but we get the benefit and the privilege of leading our families into the assembly of the people of God. And so I, I, I'm mindful of, uh, of what one brother said, Scott Brown, he wrote a book called uh, The Family at Church, and he said that pil- children have the responsibility when they take their kids to church to be tour guides of everlasting joy, that the church is a place where the, where the children love to be, and that the Lord's Day is the best day of the week for them. Robert Murray McShane said, it is a type of heaven when a believer, speaking about the Lord's Day, Sundays, when the believer lays aside his pen or his loom, brushes aside his worldly cares, leaving them behind, leaving them behind him excuse me with his weekday clothes and comes up to the house of God it is like the morning of the resurrection the day when we shall come out of the great tribulation into the presence of God and the lamb when the believer sits under the preached word and hears the voice of the shepherd leading and feeding his soul and so families we want our children to love the church. And so that means preparing them for that. As I said already, make Sunday the best day of the week. Do what you need to do to make Sunday great again. <laughs> excuse, the, <laughs> excuse that, that's a little bit spontaneous. But, but what, we, what we need to do is this, is make a nice breakfast. Like, like in the Song of Ascent's, warm our children's hearts, warm our own hearts to sing the praises of God, to hear the preached word. In, in your car ride on the way to church, pray and ask for God's help to pay attention during the church service. Ask for God's help to be attentive to the words as you sing them. Uh, as we've said before, pray for the man who bears the responsibility of preaching the word. I love that old Dutch saying pray me empty and I will preach you empty pray me full and I will preach you full pray for the church service prepare your children to sit quietly to know what the expectations are when they're together in church plan for their success and for their discipleship and so uh, give them we give them a sheet of paper give them a pen Get their Bible open in front of them if they're old enough to do that. Get them to take notes. Help them to, I heard one brother say that if if your children are young and they can't write anything, then just say every time you hear the word Jesus, just give a little nick on the paper. Just follow along. And then I I love what Steve shared with me a a while back that uh, when he's with one of his nephews driving home, just taking, I think it's seven minutes. We have seven minutes. What did you learn today in the sermon? What did you learn today? And asking some questions. Teach our children to, to hear the word of God, to sing the word of God, and to apply the word of God. And one commentator writes about Ephesians 6.1. He says that were Paul to be present with us today, he would be shocked at the spectacle of children attending Sunday school and not participating in the regular worship service. Here he has a word specifically to children. And what he means is that in Ephesians 6:1, as the church met, Paul addresses the children, he says, "Children, obey your parents in the Lord." The expectation is that the kids were in the service, hearing that and responding to that. So church, or sorry, family worship, is mandated biblically. It consists of read, pray, sing and assemble. And then lastly, some practical considerations. So let's say you've been sitting in this service and you're thinking, I have never heard this in my life or I've heard this before, but I don't know what to do or where to start. And I'm mindful of a, I think it's a Chinese proverb. It's an extra biblical proverb of some kind. But the question goes like this, when is the best time to plant a tree? The answer 20 years ago, but when is the second best time to plant a tree and the answer is that is today and so if, if you're hearing this and you're saying yes i i need to be praying with my wife i need to be reading the scriptures with my wife i need to be leading my family in worship then then my exhortation to you is to start today don't start tomorrow go home tonight sit down my kids love family meetings when things aren't going well they say dad it's time for a family meeting Call the family meeting and say, kids, you heard what we heard in church today. I have not been doing that. But by God's grace, I intend to begin now. And then with your family, read, pray, and sing. Read the word, pray the word, sing the word. Don't expect perfection, but, but aim for consistency and then be like Jonathan Edwards when his family, you think of all the people through church history that engaged in family worship. You go, if, if I'm one of the few people that's doing that, I'm among the greats. But, but Jonathan Edwards, when he would do family worship, he would expound the text differently to the different children. And so he would reach them at their age level. And so, uh, Will, if you're talking to Millie, don't say to her, now Millie, please tell me, what is transubstantiation and why is that incorrect? <laughs> or, or, or penal substitutionary atonement. But get down to their level. And we can, we can start to describe who is Jesus. What did he do? Why did he do it? Find, find a book or a guide. We should have had some here today. We, we have some family worship guides on order. But they'll be here next week. But, but go through the book of, of Ruth this week while you wait for that to come. Or or our family, we're, we're reading through the Proverbs and we do two Proverbs a day usually, maybe four, and the kids take turns reading it and we discuss it. And and, and even on Friday, Noah said to me, he said, "'Dad, th- this I used to think this was boring, "'but this is actually really good.'" And it is. So start today, stay consistent. If, if you're a married man or a married woman, Men, lead your wives. Read, pray, sing. If if, if you're siblings that live together, I don't know how often you guys do family worship together, but make that your aim. Come together for five minutes at a mealtime. Read, pray, and sing. Men, as soon as you entertain any kind of courting relationship with a young woman, set the tone early. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so this is what it's going to look like you're gonna scare away all the ladies that you don't want to be with. And all the ladies that love that, those are the ones you want. Mm -hmm. And and for the women, for the young ladies that aren't married here, don't entertain a man who isn't prepared to love you by leading your family in worship. And there's a good chance if he doesn't do it now, he's probably not going to do it later. So if he's gonna get there, he'll get there and you can entertain him then. But until then, look for a man the lord is first and he intends to lead his family and then and then lastly i'll say this family worship is not a substitute for individual saving faith in the gospel i'm sure there are a million people in the world maybe not a million maybe a thousand people in the world that lead their families in worship every single day of the week twice a day and they do not know christ and their hope is in their performance That's one of the risks of preaching a sermon like this that's very application-rich is that someone can say, well, Christianity consists then of leading my family in worship. No. Leading your family in worship is a response to a right understanding of the gospel. And the gospel is this, that, that Christ died for you while you were still a sinner, that he rose on the third day, and that he offers forgiveness to all of those who repent and come to him by faith. And so don't substitute family worship for the gospel. Believe in Christ. And as you believe in Christ, respond in worship. And I'll finish just with this this brief story from the life of Joel Beakey. Joel Beakey in his book, it's in this book actually. Someone should come and get it, please. Um, come get it today. In in preparation for the 50th anniversary of, of his, his parents, their 50th wedding anniversary. That's what I'm trying to say. Beakey and his four siblings they, they got together and they decided, okay, we are going to each prepare a few words to express our thanks to our father and mother, but we're going to do it without consulting each other. We're not going to talk about it. We're just going to come there and we're going to give our thanks for something that we are thankful for, both for mom and for dad. And so during this event, as the children expressed thanksgiving to their mother, remarkably, all five of her children, all five of her adult children thanked mom for her prayers without consulting each other. The most profound and important thing in the lives of those kids that they remembered when they became adults was that their mother, their mother prayed for them, that she prayed with them, that, that their mother was a woman of prayer and that she shared that with them. And then when they shared what they were most thankful about for their father, also remarkably each of these five children, as they took their turn, thanked their father for leading their family in family worship. And then during this time of Thanksgiving, Joel Beakey's brother said, Dad, this reminds me of John Patton's father, Dad, the oldest memory I have is of tears streaming over your face as you taught us about the Holy Spirit and as you read to us from the Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday evenings. And continuing, he said, when I was only three years old, God used you in family worship to convict me that Christianity was real and that no matter how far I went astray, I could never seriously question the reality of Christ and Christianity. And I want to thank you for that. Here in this In the life of this family, the greatest legacy that these parents left for their children was a legacy of leading them to God. And I assure you that if if you devote yourselves to that, husbands, wives, dads, families, if you devote yourselves to leading your children to the Lord in worship, in discipleship, of taking up that privilege that fearful responsibility, that duty, if you take that up, you will have the most lasting legacy in all the world, that that we would lead our children and their little souls to a good and a great Savior. There's no greater pursuit than to do that. So my prayer is that each of us would, would be remembered if we get a 50th wedding anniversary, that our children would come to us and say, Dad, the most important thing that, that you ever did for me is that, you, is that you took me to God. You took me to God so that I could know him for myself. So that he wasn't just the God of my father, but he's my God. And that we would say like, like Joshua... As we, as we leave a fallen world and as we enter into, into a new land with our families, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.